Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We'll be picking up on page 104. We, God willing, will finish the section, the difference between mortal and venial sins. Let's open with prayer and invocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, question 208, and again page 104. Now then, since it is clear that no sin per se deserves forgiveness, you recall this from last week, that no matter how small the sin, it is in fact an act of rebellion and treason against God. It's very different than our human way of viewing things where where small infractions deserve to just be overlooked. That's not the case when it comes to the divine law. Indeed, you remember the scripture from James, whoever is guilty in one place is guilty of all. Now then, since it is clear that no sin per se deserves forgiveness, likewise that no sin is so horrible that it cannot be forgiven to those who repent and believe in Christ, Why then are some sins in the reborn called venial, some mortal? Answer, this should be well and carefully explained so that each Christian can know and determine if he is living in mortal or venial sin. The explanation consists essentially in this, that everyone examine himself as to whether or not he has true repentance and faith. A number of citations given there. Original sin, which still dwells in the flesh of the reborn, is not idle, but is the restless law of sin in our members, enticing, tempting, driving to sin with various suggestions and evil lusts. Since then, one who is reborn does not delight in this kind of carnal lusts and is neither led by them nor follows them, but earnestly represses and crucifies them as sins and mortifies them through the Spirit, lest they rule or be performed. This very thing is a very sure sign of true and earnest repentance. And when the reborn pray, that God would not impute these weaknesses to them, but forgive for the sake of Christ, and at the same time believe and trust that Christ, as the true propitiation, would, in the sight of God, cover this their uncleanness with his innocence and obedience. This also is a sure sign of true and justifying faith. And where true faith in earnest repentance, apprehends Christ in the gospel and relies on him and is supported by him, there is no condemnation but the pure grace of God, forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. In this way there are and occur these venial sins in the reborn, for which they are not condemned, because, as Augustine says, they live under grace. All right, so a beautiful statement, and it is a generally true. We, we've spoken this axiom before, even if it's a bit of an oversimplification. It is generally true that when one is penitent over these sins, they're venial. When one is impenitent, they're mortal. Here you get a little bit more specificity, a little bit more detail. The picture comes into a tighter and more intricate focus. And there are effectively here in Chemnitz, and I think he's right on, two principles, two diagnostics. And the first is that you're trying not to sin. That's the first diagnostic. 
And the second is that when you do, you confess it as sin and receive forgiveness from Christ. I think these two come straight out of the scriptures. Indeed, one passage uh, from St. John's epistle. I write these things to you that you may not sin. (laughs) Goal number one is exactly the first part of this paragraph that we would mortify the desires of the flesh, not be led by them and not follow them. That's step one. How does John continue? But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, etc., etc. So in the Christian life, goal one is always don't sin in the first place. Mortify the flesh. When you do sin or fall into sin, as Chemnitz writes, pray that Christ would forgive you these weaknesses, blot out your transgressions, cleanse you from all unrighteousness through his blood. Indeed, he promises to and will. So these are, the two, these are two very effective diagnostics. Uh, when people are dealing with, in our decadent, um, late American culture, um, vices are seen as virtues. And uh, habitual sins and um, uh, sins that have in previous years gone as besetting sins um, are so common, so common, that we don't even recognize them even having to do with our entertainment, with our diet, with the sexuality that permeates all of our culture, with the envy and greed that permeates all of our culture, even just things like what's taken for upright business practices in our land would be seen as just egregious and boundless greed in other times and places. So there are so many habitual, besetting, um, encompassing sins And I know that this causes uh, great consternation in the hearts of Christians. And it should. It should, in fairness. That's why Paul says, a wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. And every Christian feels that way and confesses this. You know, one of the quickest diagnostics with uh, habitual, besetting, recurring sins that are kind of written into you so deep, you don't even know, like, (laughs) at which point am I committing this or not? I mean, you know. It's just, it's all kind of a a wash of evil. Would you be free from it? It's a very simple question. Would you be free from it if you could? Since we live in an instant gratification culture, it makes sense. If you could push a button right now and be rid of that forever, would you? And of course, a repentant Christian is going to like say, yes, I would have that button (laughs) depressed. I'd have the spring broken. I'd be pushing it so hard and so many times. I want to be free from these things. I want to be free from uh, this, um, not only this body of death, but this culture of death, this world of death that entices and tells me these vices are are virtues and want to be extricated from it all. It's such a beautiful way to meditate on that because you realize then that you're allied with God. You agree with his law that it is good, and you're against the sinful nature that is within you. And This is the very logic that Paul follows in Romans 7. It says, then it's no longer you who sin, but sin that dwells in you. So again, just to re-paraphrase Chemnitz and John, goal number one is to crucify and mortify these sins, to identify them, weaken them, attack them, get through them as best as we can. And if we do, move on to something else, you know. There's no, there's no end of, of sinful things to correct in ourselves. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't fall into despair. Even just gaining an inch is worth it. And then, if you do fall, or when you do fall, and even in an overarching sense, we always plead guilty before God of, of sins, and we trust in the blood and righteousness of Christ. And that's true no matter how little or no matter how far we progress. God willing, you'd look at yourself a decade ago or two decades ago and say, By God's grace and his grace alone, I've come a long way. I I wish that for every Christian. I hope that for every Christian. And I hope that the next decades are the same for you. And you just keep going and going. Uh, But of course, there's no pride that comes from that. It's all by the grace of God. It's all thanks be to God. And very frequently, we struggle even to see it. But there are ways in which we can see it. And when we do see it, we shouldn't become boastful, proud, arrogant. Nor is that a necessity if we have those reflections, we just give thanks and praise to God, glorify his Holy Spirit and the work he's done within us. 
So this is a way for us to, you know, again, see how God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the dynamics of our culture, maybe the wickedness in these latter days is heightened, especially given our cultural context. But the principles of God, the truths of God, remain the same. And they're the same for us in the 21st century, even as they are for Chemnitz in the 16th, or all the way back, the church fathers, all the way back to the first apostles. Okay, I've, I've seen a couple of hands flickering. Yeah, please. Um, I've never thought about sin this way until just something you said sparked it, made me think about it. But sin is really, it can be compared a lot to addiction. Mm-hmm. We're addicted to it. We were born with the mm-hmm. propensity towards it now at this point. And when we view it like, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who have addictions and they have to recognize a higher power. Mm-hmm. And my famous phrase that I said that I probably borrowed from somewhere else, I don't know where, was um, it's got you before you know you've been gotten. Mm-hmm. And right. sin is the same way. Yeah. If you not, if you're not paying attention, it seems normal all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's where we can go from venial to mortal um, rather easily. I mean, hopefully a Christian won't because they realize their only power over it is through their higher power, which is our God. Yeah, exactly. And what Christ right. did. But I've never really thought about it that way. But it is. It's a. It's a. It's an earthly addiction. The story of Cain and Abel, right off practically the first thing in the Bible, is such a good illustration of these principles. Long before, uh, well, I don't know how long, but before, definitively before, uh, Cain kills his brother Abel, God warns him and says sin is lurking at the door you you have to you have to rule over it or it will devour you and that's part of our problem is we see sin as this kind of neutral thing or this sort of thing you fall into but the way that god instructs right from the start is that sin we should think of it as like a, a lion crouching outside the door it's it's not an inert thing it's not a brainless thing sin has a, sin is a predator sin will devour you that's the nature of sin and so, obviously, God was calling um, Cain to not sin, right? To mortify that impulse that he had. He was downcast on account of his offering being not accepted. He was jealous and envious of his brother, his sacrifice being accepted. Uh, he had murderous impulses in his heart. And God warns him and says, in effect, crucify these things. Rule over this beast that is crouching at the door. If you don't, it's going to devour you. I write these things to you that you may not sin. Then Cain, um, after he does commit the sin and fails the first part, the mortification, then he fails the second part. Is he in any way penitent? No, is the short answer. A false penitence. Uh, An I'm sorry I got caught and a this penalty is too hard for me to bear which a contrite person doesn't say <laughs> a contrite person who recognizes they deserve hell is willing to say the punishment of god whatever it is is just up to and including hell that's the nature of sin and the gravity of sin so a contrite person doesn't say oh well, this is unreasonable So he fails both tests. In the first place, he doesn't mortify sin. He falls into it. And in the second place, when confronted by God, he doesn't repent. He doesn't confess. He doesn't ask to be atoned for. He doesn't ask for God to make atonement for him and, and forgive his sin. But he goes on in this kind of poor me hardness of heart and really becomes an example par excellence of a stubborn, impenitent, False repentance. You see this in other places too. You see this in Esau, though it seems to go uh, well for him later um, with the birthright and the seeking the blessing with tears. He didn't care anything about it up front. And then you see this with uh, Judas and his false repentance. So this becomes a biblical type and pattern. In the first place, don't sin. In the second place, if you do, 
than be forgiven, the, the, the men we look at in the scriptures as most wicked and most pitiable are those men who fail to mortify the flesh, they engage in the sin, and then they fail to confess and be forgiven, and they uh, consider themselves unworthy of eternal life. Yeah. So that would be a wonderful study if you're, you know, hey, where do I get this right out of the Bible in a compelling way? Uh, that story of um, uh, Genesis 4. Very helpful. Okay, anything else we want to touch on while we're here? Please. I was just thinking um, how there's a strong temptation to be against the body altogether, and I forgot what that that phrase was that of the early um, mm. those who, who thought that the body altogether was bad, like Gnosticism yeah, or some not, form that's of what that. I was yeah, for. Sure. it seems like such a strong temptation to go in that direction mm-hmm. in order to avoid temptation to just kind of do away with the body altogether. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see, you see that um, the teaching of the scriptures is entirely contrary to that, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that Christ has joined us uh, in one flesh, in one body. And so the, and, and in fact, in 1 Corinthians, it says flat out that the body is meant for the Lord. So beautiful elevating statements, very contrary to the philosophy of the time in the first century, Generally speaking, though, this is the rule. I mean, occasionally you see the kind of hatred of the body that's just then becomes like some sort of ascetic abuse of the body. You do see that, but it's pretty rare, especially I don't don't think we see it much at all in our culture. But what you see in our culture is that same Greek idea of, well, the body with its animal impulses just has to be satisfied. And so I'm going to do all that. And in some cases, that's just justified on its face. But in other cases, it's, well, my soul is something different. And so you see this sort of Gnosticizing tendency within American Christianity, especially kind of libertine or antinomian tenets of Christianity or or false, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, Um, those who claim to be Christians but clearly aren't, or at least aren't on this point, those that then... um, have this idea of like, well, the impulses are the impulses. The law of God just points out those impulses in me and directs me to Christ. But meanwhile, I never try to crucify or mortify those impulses within me. I just let them reign in my flesh. And I sort of justify this as my soul is one thing, and that's my faith in Jesus, and my flesh is another thing. And that just gets free reign to do whatever it wants. That's a kind of Gnosticism that... Uh, sad to say, I think is fairly w- widespread as culture has been lawless. Uh, Christianity becomes lawless along with it. And um, yeah, there are many victims of that false theology. Yes, sir, please follow up. Um, where'd the microphone go? Oh, oh, could, would, you, would you mind doing a little quick handoff over your shoulder? Just he had one follow up here. Sorry, this is, um, but it's related to it. Um, just thinking about how. Psychology, uh, the whole invention of psychoanalysis and this idea of repression, and what seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, what seems to be a popular notion that um, repressing certain bodily desires is what causes unhappiness or, Mm -hmm. or all these things, right? And so the idea is like, well, just what we were saying before. So you have to sort of let these things, right? you know, you have to manage sin, I guess, to sort of, I guess maybe the, the popular notion as yeah, if, as yeah, if yeah. that could be done, right? But yeah. let the body sin and sort of keep it uh, polite in polite society or whatever mm-hmm. the idea is. This idea that if you repress it, mm-hmm. if you're a Christian and you try to repress that, you're going to cause trouble for yourself you're gonna, and, for the, and on and on and on. Yeah. So that psychology itself, I don't know, can we talk about the problems of that are within that? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think you bring up a good point. Of course, the church in in many circles has failed spectacularly with its kind of purity culture. And so you've got these, you know, remember the opposite of one error is the other error. And so you've got some these, these kinds of purity cults that emerge within Christianity and American Christianity, and they're not grounded 
in, in they're not laid upon a biblical foundation. They're not grounded in the word and sacrament and power of the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. They're not grounded in don't sin. If you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. They become a thing unto themselves, and they become then perverse and detached and warped. And we've seen some of that occur. Culturally, there's been a kind of backlash against that. You know, a, a denunciation of that is puritanical or um, and a mistaking of that as Christianity per se. And a reaction against that, as you point out, at least popularly, but springing from Freud, uh, this idea that I mean, Freud kind of lays the foundation and everybody jumps on it and popularizes it over and against the purity stuff. But yeah, it's this idea that your body has these impulses and repressing them creates all kinds of inner and psychological turmoil. That's the theory. Uh, so all it is is an elaborate theory that you can, that you had better make a deal with sin. Better to sin a little than repress it and end up sinning a lot. And that, that's the, it's one of Satan's great tricks, of course, is you make a deal with sin. So you, you look at it as like, okay, it, it's a category mistake because you don't realize, like Genesis, that sin is crouching at the door. You don't say to a, you don't say to a lion, okay, uh, just a finger. <laughs> now, now, please stop. We had a deal. <laughs> and in the same way, you can't make that deal with sin and say, well, I better do this. I better give a finger lest I repress it, right? It's going to take the whole thing. Yeah. So I think there's two errors that have gone on, this sort of uh, perverse purity move, um, and then... I mean, maybe even still more egregious and more damaging, though overall by a long shot, would be this sort of libertine Gnosticism once more, which never really has left Western culture. Any other thoughts? Great reflections, great, great questions. Thanks. One Please. One of the things that a lot of those repressed memories have led to is the whole notion which have now debunked about false memories. Sin is still crouching at the door of the same... And we take those false memories and elaborate on them, and they're nothing close to what really actually happened. Mm -hmm. The body is very capable of creating false memories. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. I just want to um, just untangle myself from the wrong way of thinking. So what I'm understanding is, it doesn't. Yes, all sin is. We all need to be forgiven by sin, and yes, sins are there's worse sins and bad sins and. But in nature, the only sin that is, um, is not venial or that are immortal are the ones that are not, we're not willing to repent of, correct? Is that what I'm hearing you saying? Um, because that, that's I, and different than the Catholic view that there's some sins that are moral and some sins that are not. Yeah. But we're defining moral sins or just any sins that we are not willing to repent of. Is that... I understand that correctly. Okay, that's generally true, but there, are, there, are, there is a category of exception to that. Mm -hmm. So it's not quite so simple. Because then that, that leads one to think like, all right, all right. I'll take an extreme example. So David with Bathsheba, of course, right? So then, then if, you, if you follow that line of like, impenitent is mortal, penitent is venial, and that's your only way of thinking. Now, I think that that statement's generally true. But if that's your only way of thinking, things are going to end up getting distorted. Because you're going to end up seeing all sins as the same. Whether David looked at Bathsheba with lust and nipped it in the bud, or whether he went all the way through with it, either way, as long as he repents in the end, no harm, no foul. That hopefully demonstrates the point that all sins are not the same, nor do they have the same effects or consequences. It obviously would have been much better if he nipped it in the bud, and it wouldn't have led to murder and the undermining of the office of king and the undermining of faith in Yahweh and etc. throughout the whole kingdom. So I think we need to be careful... And Chemnitz does too. That's where if you go back to question 205, where he lists the seven mortal, or I don't know if he lists them, he just mentions the seven mortal or deadly capital 
sins. There are sins that should be recognized that by the very commission, they're mortal. They can't be sins of weakness. They can't be sins that are just simply overlooked. They are mortal by their very nature. The easiest way to wrap your head around this, if you're just trying to, is premeditation and plotting and planning and carrying out and covering up are all, and and some great big manifest. I mean, yes, Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his eye has already committed adultery and is already guilty of the sixth commandment. But that's categorically different than going out and engaging in a one-flesh union with someone. Are both violations of the law? Yes. Do both render one guilty before God and in need of atonement and forgiveness? Yes. And that's Jesus' point. The Pharisees aren't as righteous as they think they are just because they're saying, hey, uh, I, I don't commit adultery. Jesus is saying the law doesn't stop there. It penetrates all the way to the heart. But what Jesus is absolutely not saying is that lust in the eye is the same as committing a one-flesh union adultery that breaks up a marriage and, and or unites one's flesh to another. That's a sin that has much more gravity. It, it includes not only the lust of the eye, but then that lust um, conceives and bears sin, and the sin brings forth death, spiritual death. James gives us that diagnosis. You can think about this very much, too, if you're a, if you're a parent and you have children. Would, would I rather my child um, think about stealing money from me or actually do it? Well, in the first place, I'd rather none of the above. <laughs> so that's always the goal, is I write these things to you that you may not sin. Now, if they, do steal for, if, they, if they do think about stealing or actually steal, are both things sinful? Are both things disordered and displeasing? Absolutely. I don't want them thinking about such things. And so it's, it's sinful. But is one sin worse than the other? Absolutely. And if my, if my child came and said, hey, I'm really, I was really tempted to steal. I saw this money there and I was really tempted to steal and I just want you to know that I'm sorry I was tempted. Did you steal it? No. Okay, well, let's talk about this. I'm so glad you fought the impulse and I'm so glad you're confessing to me and let's, let's get you forgiven. And you know what? Maybe you need some chores and an allowance so you can earn this money and not, not be tempted to steal, right? That's a, it is a sin, but it's a much lesser sin and a sin that's much more manageable than, no, they just looted me. They pre, it was premeditated. They waited. They saw it. They waited till I was gone. They took it. They spent it right away so I could never recover it. And then they tried to hide it and blame it on their younger sibling. Now, that should hopefully illustrate to you the difference between a, a venial sin and a mortal sin. There are certain sins that just by their very nature, not interested in the chicken and the egg question here, either cast out the Holy Spirit or are evidence that the Holy Spirit has been preemptively cast out. So either way you want to look at it is fine with me, but that's what happens. So that, that's an important principle to hold along with this sort of general truth that impenitent sin equals mortal and penitent sin equals venial. That's a very helpful tool. But there are places and times in which it's not helpful. And that's why Chemnitz begin, you know, puts 205 before he puts 208. That we have to recognize that there are certain sins that we can be tempted and indeed fall into which are mortal by their very nature. Does that help? Yeah. Now, can we recover from a sin that is mortal by its very nature? Of course. That's the story of David. The preacher comes to him and um, tells the parable, and he condemns himself, and he confesses and is absolved. Absolutely. The Bible's filled with it. Uh, Peter denies the Lord three times. He's absolved. He's restored. The Bible is filled with men who, and women who uh, do grievous mortal sins, fall away, and are restored by the grace of the Lord. And the church is going to be filled with such people too. And that means heaven will be filled with such people too, which is a testament to God's grace. Yeah, God is really more wonderful than we could ever put voice to, and his grace and mercy in Christ Jesus more astounding than we can comprehend. 
And uh, yeah, to meditate on it in concrete is really something. Really something. That's who he is and how he is. All right, anything else here on 208? Not seeing anything. All right, on to 209 then. But what if we indulge and delight in evil lusts and seek occasions to give them free reign? Well, I think you already can smell what's cooking here. Answer, then they become mortal sins. Because there surely is no room for true repentance and faith where the lusts of the flesh are served and given reign, so that they break out into action. It is the nature and particular character of true faith that it does not seek how to commit, (laughs) continue, and heap up sins freely, but rather hungers and thirsts after the righteousness that releases and frees from sins. Therefore, where there is no true repentance, the Holy Spirit pronounces a very solemn sentence. A number of citations there given. And where there is no true faith, there is neither Christ nor the Holy Spirit nor the grace of God, nor forgiveness of sins nor any salvation. Here is a kind of Faith that is no faith at all. And this is what James is critiquing in his epistle. It's what Jesus critiques in many of his parables. A faith which appears to be faith, but is no faith at all. A claiming of Christ, but no readiness whatsoever. No no reality of it whatsoever. Uh, A shell, an external shell, not an internal reality and such. I mean, even the the, uh, parable that was uh, in the sermon today on that parable, wonderful both obviously. Um, But remember the wise and the foolish virgins. They're all virgins. They're all there for the bridegroom. What's being said by Christ? They're all Christians. They're all in. And they're all there for the bridegroom. But some of them are morons. That's transliteration. (laughs) Uh, They're foolish. And their foolishness, that is their unbelief, despite, hey, we're here and we've got the whole facade and everything else, their foolishness, their unbelief, is displayed then in their lack of readiness. They don't even do the bare minimum. You know, like when my wife says we've got to go to such and such a dinner event or work party or whatever, and I wait to the last minute to get ready. Do any of you guys know what this is like? Why? Because I don't really want to be there. And so my shirt's wrinkled and crumpled and I've got to go to plan B and I'm completely not ready and not prepared. Why? Because I'm not interested in being ready or prepared. And there are many such examples we could, we could drum up. But that, that is exactly why the foolish virgins aren't ready and prepared. They don't want to be ready and prepared. They don't really care. They're going through the motions. They're going along for the show. They don't even care enough to bring oil with their lamps. So their unbelief is shown forth in their lack of action and their lack of readiness. That readiness is exactly what Jesus puts his finger on there. Okay, so what we glean from James with the idea of the faith of the demons, the false faith, what we glean from many of the parables of Jesus where it's, it's all, uh, all hat and no horse, or however that expression goes, it's external, not internal, then we need to be warned that indeed there is false faith and there are false Christians. And there are those within the fold who will knock and say, hey, we're here now, we're ready now, and the gate's already been shut, the door's already been closed, and Jesus says, I never knew you. Okay, so the concept of true faith and false faith illustrated, it's a thoroughgoing concept in the scriptures and illustrated here, and it's worth paying attention to. And again, we can use those diagnostics, even self-diagnostics. They're very helpful. Do you desire to be free from this sin? Do you want to do better? That's the language of our confession liturgy. Do you want to do better? It's the language in the small catechism, too. Yes, I want to do better. Yes, I want to be free from this. 
do you confess these things as sins before God and receive his forgiveness? Yes, I do. Though I'm unworthy of it, yes, I do. That's a Christian. That's a Christian heart. Um, that's one in whom there is no guile, no deceit, as Jesus says of Nathaniel, I think it is. That's what he means. So where there's deceit and, and guile, and you know it, then you should all the more take, take cognizance of the false faith you've fallen into and make it genuine. Get the oil for your lamp. Don't be foolish. Be wise. Prepare for the bridegroom's coming. You don't want to miss him. Now's the day of salvation. So repent. And yes, indeed, desire to do better and bear those fruits worthy of repentance. Yeah, it's a Christian walk. Okay, so uh, true faith, false faith, um, is a biblical concept. One error would be to reject that and say, oh, it's just faith or no faith. It, you know, stop it with all of this. Usually people who have been abused by the opposite error tend to, tend to speak in this way. The opposite error is, are you really, truly, genuinely, in fact, having faith? And are you, is your faith really, truly, genuinely, absolutely, certainly the real deal? And this is a kind of satanic error that makes you, you know, you pack and pack and pack until you're like, well, I don't know anymore. I don't know if I have legitimate faith. So that's one error, and that's been very common in America, especially preachers that you know, are very manipulative. They'll pack and pack and pack. Do you have genuine faith? Are you really sure you have true faith? And it's just, it's tiresome and it's spiritually damaging. But the, the, opposite, the, the reaction to that, which is just the opposite error, is, well, you just eat, I mean, there is no such thing as false faith to even be worried about. It's just the opposite error. The truth, of course, is right down the middle with Scripture. In one place, don't get wind up over this really, truly, genuinely eyes on your heart and examining, because all you're going to find there, ultimately, is sin and shortcoming, and you need to turn outside of yourself to the Lord. But don't dismiss these thoroughgoing biblical categories of true faith and false faith and having the externality but not the internality, having the facade but not the reality. Yeah. Okay, hopefully that all makes some sense, resonates. On to 210? Great. How then should one deal with those who have fallen into this kind of sins? Answer, their sins are not to be disguised by silence, camouflaged, excused, or defended, but solemnly and earnestly censured and rebuked. Reprove them sharply. I think here, quoting from Titus 1.13. In such a way that the fearful judgment of God is threatened on them. Many, many citations here for those of you listening online that you can check out for yourself. Kenneth continues, For he that regards those people as true Christians and charms and misrepresents them, not only miserably misleads them, but also makes himself partaker of their damnation. Uh, stark and true. In our lectionary, Ezekiel comes up all the time. These are the if you do not warn them that they will die, you will die kind of rhetoric. It's uh, fairly common in those sections of Ezekiel. Okay, so where we see people engaged in um, impenitent sins, sins that are by their very nature, uh, mortal sins, etc., then we should rebuke them and in no uncertain terms. Now, depending on the personality, you can modify that as best serves them, but generally this would be, like in Walther's words, the law in its full sternness, and that must precede the gospel in its full, full sweetness, as we covered maybe last week or the week before. The gospel is not for everyone, according to the Book of Concord and according to the Scriptures themselves, according to Jesus himself. The gospel is for those who acknowledge they are sick, for those who acknowledge that they are dead in trespasses, for those who acknowledge that they are in need of a physician, then the full sweetness of the gospel comes and Christ says, I will be such a physician unto you, heal you with the gospel, forgive you, and then work that sanctification within you so that these things 
don't happen and or become less frequent, etc. Okay, anything there? Um, maybe, did I get all the way through? No, I don't think I did. So, second paragraph then. Now, the preaching of repentance, rebuking sins, is the instrument and means by which God wants to lead fallen sinners back to the way and convert them. But if the wicked, neglecting this means, will persevere and continue in his wickedness, he indeed shall perish. But the word of the minister shall deliver his soul. Ezekiel 3.19, right. So, that's the fearful thing about being in a position of a prophet or, by extension, pastor, is where you see sin, you do have to point it out. Otherwise, you become accountable for it. Two eleven. but what if the fallen rise again by the grace of God and earnestly repent? Answer, then they are indeed to be received with joy and are to be restored and supported with the declaration of the forgiveness of sins. Many citations given here. This is what the examples of Scripture testify. Some that I've already mentioned. Peter, David, the prodigal, uh, the Corinthians, and Galatians. And this, indeed, not only seven times, but 70 times, uh, 70 times seven times. Matthew 18, 22. So remember, Peter comes and says, how many, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? And he probably thinks he has a pretty good answer with seven. Um, it was uh, not uncommon in that time for rabbis and others to say three times. So he probably thought, okay, well, I know it can't be. Jesus is too gracious for that. Seven's a pretty godly number, so let's, let's run with seven. <laughs> and then Jesus just blows that out of the water and says, no, not, not seven times, but 70 times seven. You're going to need an Excel spreadsheet for that. That's hardly the point, though. The point, rather, is, no, any time your brother comes and sins against you, or, or sins against you and comes and repents of that sin, you need to forgive him, because that's how God forgives you. And the implication here is really what's stunning, because the implication is that if God expects that of, of us as his Christians, then how much more freely, how much more abundantly does he forgive our sins? And we shouldn't be fear. We shouldn't be fearful. Oh, I... I confessed this to you uh, yesterday. Surely you won't forgive me. Surely you're tired of me. And if God won't allow Peter that, <laughs> God's not going to allow himself that. So likewise, uh, God, I know you're tired of hearing from me. I sinned just last hour, and the hour before that, and the hour before that, the same thing that I've been fighting against. Here I am again, thinking these thoughts, entertaining these ideas. Have mercy. The Lord is not grieved by our continual converse. He is not grieved by our uh, continual repentance. In fact, he invites it. Every time we pray the Our Father, we're praying, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And that's what, how Christ himself teaches us to pray. So constantly asking God for forgiveness where we've fallen is not obnoxious to him at all. It's exactly what he wants. Please, um, one, one second. We've got to let the whole World Wide Web be blessed by our converse here. <laughs> it's teasing. Um, it's a great prescription for any betrayal in this world. God shows us how to deal with it. Yeah. And the people who say, you'll never forgive me. How many times am I going to have to ask for your forgiveness mm -hmm. or whatever? You know, my answer to that was always as many times as it takes, get ready. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what God does for us. That's what it brought to my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Many times as it takes absolutely. to make that person feel at ease. I think there's a, a microcosmic pattern that happens that, again, parents will recognize where you continually forgive your children, but you sort of turn up the heat. <laughs> and I think God works the same way. It's just bigger. It's just longer time frame. Um, he turns up the heat. Yes, I forgive you, but I'm going to make it more uncomfortable for you as you continue to engage in this. Yes, I forgive you. But, and, but why is he turning up the heat? Why do parents turn up the heat on their children? Because they want better for them. They want to help them along. They don't want to just forgive. 
Forgiveness is wonderful. It's great, but it's secondary. It just is. The goal of me as a, as a parent to my children is not, hey, keep sinning so I can be gracious to you so you can learn to be gracious. That's, that's got... It's like... What's the saying? I, I don't remember what the saying is. Like trying to steer the donkey from the back end, right? <laughs> You've got uh, parents, you, you rather are directing your kids constantly because you love them into not, not doing those things in the first place. That's why you turn up the heat and maybe the carrot and the stick or whatever else or the explanations of why. Or, um, but you, you want them to understand why it's, this is important or meaningful. And that is a first order. And then second, when they fall, you forgive. And that's the way that God works, too. No, no father sets out and says, I want my children to make a disaster of themselves so I can prove to everyone how gracious I am by continuing to forgive them. What kind of perverse parenting is that? And I mean, even if human beings, we'd say that's perverse parenting. That's just acceptance and approval, not actual parenting, right? So um, then writ large, God's very much the same way. He wants what's best for us. He'll direct and steer us to what's best for us. He'll forgive us along the way, but he will turn up the heat on those whom he loves. And sometimes that's uh, done in short order, and sometimes that's done in long order. And of course, given that we're incorrigible sinners in our fallen nature, you know, to one degree or another, we're going to experience that all the way unto the end. I mean, death is the final mortification, the final heat being turned up on the sin. And we just need to, in the, in the face of death, then you kind of have this, this test of the soul, whether you're aware of it or not, um, this testing of the soul. Do you rely on God's grace and mercy? Are you willing to let go of these things? Are you willing to let go of your very self? Yeah, I am. Absolutely. So that's where all of that then comes to a, a, final, a final point and a, indeed a new birth. That's what death is. That's why Christ is laid into the virgin tomb because it's the new virgin womb from which we are all born and uh, united with him in that tomb through baptism that just as he is risen, um, we're risen with him. And so that's, the, I mean, that's sort of the final point of gest- gestation in this life to borrow from St. Paul, um, the, uh, the world is shaking in birth pangs. Well, what does that mean? That we're in the womb or outside of the womb? In the womb. And death is, if nothing else, the head. <laughs> but maybe even in a sense, the whole birth of uh, the sons of God. And that's entrusting ourselves entirely, that I'm, I'm ready to die and be entirely new. I'm ready to be born again in the in the fullest sense. I'm ready to have that completion of baptism uh, wrought within me. And that's a penitent state. That's a state of dying to oneself entirely. That, that, that's where all this is being, um, you know, it's where we're being directed. It's why God does turn up the heat on us progressively and ultimately in death. It's not to destroy us. It's to uh, make us new, to uh, shape and form us, and then to prepare us for that new birth and that life which is to come. He's shaping and forming our character. He's shaping and forming who we are um, for an eternal purpose. Okay, so just some thoughts off the cuff there. Anything else we want to chat about before we hit 2.11? On to 2.11. No, wait a minute. We just did 2.11. On to the sin against the Holy Spirit. Do we have time? Sure, we've got time. We'll jump into this. Okay, 2.12. We should say a few things first off the top, because this is a terrible way to just introduce the topic. Um, the Holy Spirit is called, uh, is great. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's fantastic. Uh, the Holy Spirit is more tender, more compassionate, more long-suffering, more wonderful than we can possibly imagine. And it does not, um, you know, we're warned in the scriptures, not to say that, I mean, the Holy Spirit is a, is God, of course. There's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's called holy because he makes things holy. He's the one who gives us faith and directs us to Christ, does so through the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. The Holy Spirit's involved in all of this. The Holy Spirit is our tutor that leads us to Christ, and Christ reveals to us the Father. Just had some train of thought that got derailed there, but the... uh, 
Yeah, the Holy Spirit is tender and compassionate and wonderful. He, it's not to say, though, I mean, he does, he bears the name, so he's distinct from the other persons of the Trinity, right? Um, but he does, it's not as though the Holy Spirit is just some, like, just the way we would think of it, like, a nice guy. The Holy Spirit, um, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, they're struck dead. So there's a holiness and a part of the Holy Spirit that reflects the the character and nature of the other persons of the Holy Trinity as well. Um, The Holy Spirit can be grieved. We learn that in Romans. So we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And of course, we aspire. who wants to do that? But the Holy Spirit, I, I mean, in his proper work, in his proper nature, not engaged in these alien ways of being on account of our sin and, and impenitence. Uh, he's, he, he's just, it's his delight to sustain you. It's his delight to reveal things to you. It's his delight to give you what you need when you need it. It's his delight to bring to mind all kinds of scriptures and comforts and memories exactly when they're needed. Um, the Holy Spirit cares for us and is wonderful and um, so it's important to understand all of these things. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit seems like the shy one that you better not cross. Otherwise, you've committed the one sin you can't be forgiven from. And I think that's a pretty big distortion. So we really rightly can't uh, praise the Holy Spirit enough. He is, he is shy in the sense that he's always directing towards Christ. People say, like, well, where's the Holy Spirit? It's, it's you know, it's not as prominent as it should be in your ministry or life or teaching or whatever. Well, you'll find that's true in the scriptures because the Holy Spirit's job are not to take the things of the Holy Spirit and declare them unto you. But you remember what Jesus says? The Holy Spirit's job is to take the things that are mine and to declare them unto you. So the Holy Spirit, you know the Holy Spirit's there when you're getting directed toward Christ. That's the proper work of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, he um, convicts of uh, sin. He convicts of righteousness. He convicts of judgment. This is what Jesus teaches he does. So it's not all like, it's not like the Holy Spirit's just the gospel spirit. He convicts of sin. He uses the law to convict of sin. He uses the gospel to convict of righteousness. He uses the judgment to remind us that law and gospel aren't mere head games. Um, This all has a profound, uh, tangible reality interwoven. That's why the Holy Spirit, though, is, um, even in the scriptures and in the life of the church, is we, you know, we kind of tongue-in-cheek say the shy one, because it's not his job to proclaim himself. It's one of the biggest tells, I mean, aside from people barking and rolling around and doing demonic things, it's one of the biggest tells that Pentecostalism is askew, is because it's constantly pointing, it's like the Holy Spirit pointing to himself. That's not right, that's not what the Holy Spirit does. And then secondarily, you go, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit's pointing to himself by causing you to bark like a dog and roll around like an insane... Yeah, color me not believing that's the Holy Spirit. So um, the Holy Spirit's job is to point to Jesus. Where Jesus is, there's the Holy Spirit at work. And where Jesus is, there's the revelation of the Father. In fact, apart, you know, as soon as you say, well, I want God, but I'm done with this Jesus stuff for a little bit. Could you please slide out of the way, give me God? Jesus says, you've just lost God. You can't see the Father except through me. I and the Father are one. To see me is to see the Father. So the Holy Spirit directs us to Jesus because in Jesus we see the Father. And if any of that order gets botched or messed up, you're going to have all kinds of other things distorted. Yeah, so just wanted to make some general statements there about the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, he prays for us on our behalf. That's why I say he's so tender, he's so wonderful. Um, you can see this kind of uh, functional hierarchy involved in the in the persons of the Trinity. They're all equally God. They're all equally divine. Um, but in their role, the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf to the Father. We don't have anything in Scripture that says the Father prays on our behalf to the Holy Spirit. So you can see that there's a right and proper ordering and economy within the persons of the Trinity. Same with Jesus. He prays to the Father. The Father doesn't pray to him. There's, a, there's an ordering and economy within the persons, even though they're all equal. It's such a beautiful thing. If that's how God is, then we would see that written all throughout the most important parts of creation, wouldn't we? Oh, and we do. The family itself, where man, woman, and child, husband, wife, children, are all equal, are all equally creatures of God. They're all equally redeemed by Christ. They're all equally precious in his sight. But there's a hierarchy and ordering there. Uh, Just as there is a hierarchy and ordering in the persons of the Trinity that you see. Okay, 
So then, question 212, since Christ solemnly declares that there is a sin or blasphemy against the... Am I becoming Darth Vader? Is that actually finally coming to fruition? (laughs) Just teasing. There's something going on with the amplification, my voice. There it is again. Am I getting too close? Or is my beard uh, jousting with the grill here? What's happening? It's not just you. I heard it on the mic as well. Oh, okay. Other people are becoming villains. Great. All right. Well, sorry for my silliness there. So, Christ solemnly declares, Matthew 12.32, Mark 3.29, Luke 12.10, that there is a sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that is forgiven neither in this world nor in that which is to come. Ought one judge or speak lightly of that kind of sin? What do you think? No. Pretty easy answer. Here's Chemnitz's answer. In this question, we must be careful not to diminish the universal promises of the gospel. As though some sins are so great and horrible that they cannot be forgiven to the sinner, though he repent and truly believe in Christ. Here is a first and most important step, and I am so glad to see Chemnitz take this. The sin against the Holy Spirit isn't so great a sin that it can't be forgiven. There, it is not so weighty of a sin that it cannot be forgiven. That's the first key to really understanding that the sin against the Holy Spirit is an entirely different category of sins. To hide this, Jesus even says, whatever blasphemies are committed against the, the Son will be forgiven. So the point being that this isn't a matter of uh, gravity of sin. Because if it were just a matter of gravity of sin, then sins against the, the, um, the Son have equal gravity, sins of blasphemy against the Son have equal gravity to sins of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But Jesus outright and categorically denies that that's what's going on. So then, very first thing to recognize is it's not as though the sin against the Holy Spirit is so great that it cannot be forgiven. There is no such sin like that. It's in a different category altogether. Picking up right where we left off then, for this would be to deny blasphemously that Christ has made satisfaction for all sins by his passion and death. By this very thing, troubled consciences are faced with a situation that easily leads to despair. All right, well, this is going to be kind of a cliffhanger because we're, we're basically at the end here. But the first principles laid out in this paragraph are of the utmost importance to grasp. The sin against the Holy Spirit, which is not forgivable, is not that way because it's somehow more grave than other sins. It's got a different nature to it. That's the first thing to grasp. And why that's so important is because if the sin against the Holy Spirit is this great sin that's too much for God to forgive, like, oh, it's just, oh, that's too wicked, um, then that opens the door to other sins being too wicked for God to forgive. And that's Chemnitz's pastoral concern. There is no such thing that's too wicked for God to forgive. The nature of the Holy Spirit, to jump ahead and not give us such a stark cliffhanger, the nature of the, whole, the sin against the Holy Spirit is that one blasphemes against the testimony of the Holy Spirit in his heart. It's not so grave a sin, so heavy or weighty of a sin. It's how can you be forgiven when the very one who testifies in your heart that you are forgiven, that's what you reject. And not only just reject, as we'll see, but blaspheme against. When you do that, how then are you going to be saved? That's the very voice of the Holy Spirit who saves. So when you blaspheme that voice and blaspheme that word, uh, you cut yourself off from the forgiveness. Not because it's so weighty, but because that's the very nature. Like no, no, no different than taking a scissors to the garden hose. Like You're not going to get water at the end anymore. And that's the way of, of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Okay, as promised, more on that next week. In fact, we'll, we'll delve into this. We'll spend at least one week on this. As you can see, the section goes from 105 to 108. And then, of course, we're drawing to a close. So I'll be hitting you up uh, in the next few weeks. 
to help me construct the list that we'll vote on for our next uh, book in this study. The Lord be with you. And 